This week on the Backtable Podcast. One thing that I've learned, uh, and I, I, you know, I always talk to my patient day one, uh, to, you know, I always talk to them every day, but on day one, and I reiterate on day two, I explain why I want them to do what I want them to do. That is actually really important. And maybe that is an obvious, um, you know, thing, but, but if you really think about it, all, I think my, my prior practice was like, hey, um, we'd like you to walk three times a day. Okay, we'll come and check on you later. I really left out the why. But I think the why is really important. And I explain, hey, listen, you know, I know it's going to hurt to get up to walk. I understand that. But here's why. I want to reduce the risk of pneumonia, which you're at risk for. I want to reduce the risk of DVT, which you're at risk for. And all of, this thing, all of these things can be reduced just by you getting out of bed a few times a day. Um, and likewise, um, for incentive spirometry. And the interesting thing is once I started saying that, uh, my patients were much more compliant on doing them. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Backtable Urology Podcast, your source for all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and at backtable.com. This is Aditya Bagrodi as your host this week. This is part two of a two-part episode on perioperative optimization of cystectomy candidates with Dr. Angie Smith. If you haven't yet listened to part one, I encourage you to check that out as well, as we're now going to pick up on the conversation right where we left off. All right, great. So maybe perhaps moving a little bit more to the short-term perioperative period, we've kind of been talking about the, call it the weeks and months leading up to surgery. Now we're getting really, really close. Um, so the first couple of days, you know, prior to surgery, um, are you doing anything like preoperative incentive spirometers, immunonutrition, any other kind of considerations? Yeah. So we do have Good evidence now regarding nutrition. I, I had mentioned we always have a nutrition consultation in the pre-op period. Um, ideally, we have it before chemo, um, and then we might have it a repeat assessment preoperatively. We actually have a postoperative uh, assessment as well. But in that, um, there's some good evidence for the use of immunonutrition, um, particularly in cystectomy patients, but other, other major surgeries as well. And, you know, there's also the thought of, um, and it's sort of part and parcel, there's the thought that carb loading can be helpful in the, you know, in the, the day before surgery, essentially. But, you know, I've been sort of following the literature. I don't do research in immunonutrition myself, but Jim, Jill Hamilton from Kansas is um, sort of leading the charge in that. They've done some excellent um, studies that confirm that immunonutrition does have an impact. And the idea behind immunonutrition is that you know, that, that during times of stress, I mean, surgery, that there's particular proteins, you know, that and demands and um, uh, of the body that that change. And because of that, immunonutrition can um, assist with uh, wound healing and, and so forth. So essentially decreasing immunosuppression. It, it, um, she's done a study that it showed it um, increased lymphocyte count, for example, and it modified um, systemic cytokines. So there's like good science behind it. And the idea is you give some kind of oral supplement that in, in a lot of, you know, I have no stock in this. So, <laughs> you know, for the purpose of podcast and just practicality, a lot of people use impact for this. But essentially, it's like has nutrients like arginine and glutamine and some fatty acids. Um, it's commercially available. It's actually pretty low cost. And um, you give it for about three to, you know, about three to five days, something like that before. And some recommend before and after surgery. We do it before surgery for a few days. There's some good evidence in the colorectal literature 
that it has led to a significant de decrease in postoperative complications. So it's not like this is like voodoo science. There's actually good evidence it might be beneficial, and there's not really a lot of um, downside to it, right? So, um, so we do that. Um, I'm curious what you do in your practice as well. We do a little bit of carb loading in the 24 hours prior to surgery, and it's driven by our nutritionist who, as I mentioned, sees every patient. Um, and then your other question was uh, regarding preoperative incentive spirometry. So I think there's less evidence here, but it does. it's one of those things that makes logical sense. It doesn't have a lot of harm, particularly anybody like, let's say, smokers, even if, you know, I you just touched upon smoking cessation. We definitely um, incorporate that in our ERAS protocol well before surgery. Um, everyone gets a, a consultation with, with regard to that. But those are the patients, right, that preoperative incentive spirometry may be even more beneficial, in my opinion. And so we'll do that for certain patients. I wouldn't say everybody um, is recommended to do it, but it, it, there's not a lot of harm. So, you know, I think that that's a sort of a logical way that you could, um, you know, get patients motivated and um, sort of invested in their own recovery. So I actually could see, as I just speak out loud here, that there would be benefit in just kind of like getting them on board because they're going to be doing that, in, you know, after surgery, have them practice beforehand. So maybe that's something we, we should be doing routinely. So what, what do you, um, what do you all do? So um, we've kind of recently, kind of on the heels of the pandemic, explored a same-day surgery prostate protocol, and that's kind of got incentive spirometers. And we're thinking about incorporating a more standard into the uh, ERAS cystectomy protocol. Immunonutrition, we were trying to open the trial, which I think was Jeff Holzverlein and, and Jill Hamilton, as you mentioned. And I think, you know, you're, you're spot on. You know, I just tell them, I think it's Nestle, right? Nestle Impact. It is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'll just say, you know, go to your Walmart or CVS, pick up like a case and, you know, start working on it. It's not really kind of codified, if you will, but I'll, I'll, I'll try to remember just to mention that to them before. So otherwise, uh, quite similar to what you mentioned. How about bowel preps? Are you all doing much uh, by way of bowel preps? Historically, I think, you know, bowel prep was something that we did. In fact, you know, when I was training, we we were doing it um, earlier in my training. And then there was a pretty big paradigm shift, shift after that. Um, there's a Cocker review. Uh, it's like in early, maybe like 2010, 2011, it came out. It basically showed that there was no difference, uh, particularly among those who underwent colon surgery. No difference in, in anastomotic leaks or wound infections, et cetera, which was why the mechanical um, prep was instituted. So I think in urologic surgery, I, I, we don't do any um, mechanical bowel preps. I mean, maybe um, we might do an enema to debulk the rectum for a patient who had prior radiation. Um, I don't even standardly do that, but I, I don't see a, a, a big downside to, to something like that. You know, there's also the oral antibiotic prep. And, and I think for colonic surgery, it could be considered there is still some evidence that maybe there is um, benefit here, but it's not been studied as well in urologic surgery. I mean, we don't use the colon often. Um, we use the ileum. So, you know, I, I would say, you know, if you're asking me just what do I do, I, I don't use bowel preps in cystectomies. And, you know, I'm not sure if every, you know, I could say that for everyone, but I, I think that there's not great evidence for its benefit. And you have to remember, whatever we do, the patient has to do it. Um, I feel like I need to have a good reason to put them through something like that. And if I don't, then I don't want to, you know, contribute to uh, any challenges they have in the perioperative period. It's hard enough to undergo a cystectomy. So I, I don't see a, a lot of benefit there. What about you? Yeah, pretty much agree. I mean, it's actually a, 
I say silly, it's a thing that can be some source of confusion in the few instances it's required. It's like, well, do I do it after I eat or before I eat? And, you know, then maybe they're up all night running to the bathroom right before a big surgery, just coming in fatigue. And dehydration, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I tell them, you know, never tell somebody not to drink something for 12 hours and then, you know, basically get themselves dehydrated before like a half marathon, which is kind of what I like in this too. So pretty much uh, on on board with that, um, you know, maybe it's my own paranoia, but if they've had a radiation for prostate cancer or something, God forbid they would have a, you know, rectal injury, I'd do, do an enema prior. Almivapam, is that kind of standard for you all? It is. Um, you know, we know there's like level one evidence for this, but I think it's still controversial because the, there's this belief that, oh, you know, if you're, you have opioid sparing um, type of program, you shouldn't need alvimapam, right? But I will say, I, like you, I mean, I trained at a point where we didn't have it and then and, and even was in practice when we didn't have it and then transitioned to using it routinely. And my ileus rate has gone down dramatically, dramatically. Um, and, and, and perhaps that's anecdotal, but like I said, there's level one evidence, too. So we use it routinely. I, I am a big believer in it. Um, and I still use opioid sparing protocols. So can I explain it exactly? No, but. I will say that it's been very helpful in my patient population for, you know, for what it's worth. Same here. I'm kind of wholeheartedly echoed that. It was really at the end of my residency that Almivapam kind of came on the scene. And I feel like if I take a walk down memory lane, it surely seems like the rates of ileus are improved. Um, What about uh, preoperative heparin, Lovenox? Is that standard for you all? Yeah, we do. We do a single dose um, preoperatively, as a matter of fact, on everyone. So they get it in the holding area before they come back. And um, and then, of course, we continue it after surgery. I, I like to start with septuheparin because it's I guess you could say it's a little bit shorter acting, right? If there's a bleed in the first day, maybe that's, again, voodoo science, but it makes logical sense. And then I switch it over to Lovenox the day after that once I feel like, OK, they're doing all right. But yeah, I, we routinely use it. Uh, and, and, and even if I have a patient with um, cardiovascular disease on baby aspirin, I'll do a cystectomy on a baby aspirin. Um, I, I haven't had any issues with that. Yeah, I kind of share that voodoo myself. And honestly, you know, it kind of takes out any renal insufficiency considerations and so forth, making yes. it kind of smooth to get those order sets in. All right. So maybe if I just like kind of briefly reclap in the several days up to surgery, immunonutrition is, is something you all do. Incentive spirometers, you know, maybe, maybe not depending on smoking status. NPO, is that going to be generally no solids eight hours before? And then we have them have a Gatorade two hours prior. I mean, as long yeah. as they're not diabetic, uh, you know, there's other, you could say more medical prescription level fluids, but I think a Gatorade's pretty easy to navigate for patients. Oh, the other thing that uh, we do is we'll typically routinely get a thousand milligrams of Tylenol, um, mm-hmm. some ibuprofen, and then mm-hmm. we've actually moved away from gabapentin over the course of even my five years as an attending. Yes. I think the uh, the literature has kind of flipped that that may not be the best option. And, and I, I can say anecdotally that, you know, sometimes the confusion, the lethargy is pretty pronounced. Yes, I, it's interesting. We, we've actually done the exact same thing. We had gabapentin as part of the process. There was some early evidence that like the preoperative dose was helpful, but I, and perhaps it's because our, our patients are older, you know, maybe they're more sensitive to the drug. Um, we've sort of moved away from that now. But, but we also, uh, we agree. I mean, Tylenol is a great drug. Um, we use it routinely and um, can be really helpful in that multimodal 
pain regimen. Perfect. And what about uh, muscle relaxers? Are, are you using those? You know, so I think it depends on the patient, you know, so and, and the anesthesiologist. I will say that our anesthesia teams have their own sort of um, ERAS protocol that they are uh, that they sort of um, institute over time, like iteratively. I will say that they they certainly in just sort of skirting around your question, but I think that the question's more about like what do you use, right? Um, is that there's there's a protocol that every cystectomy sort of a week ahead, there were asked essentially if we want an epidural, yes or no. Um, they all um, think about um, ketamine. Um, I don't know about your group of whether they think about that, yeah. but mm-hmm. um, ketamine is sort of one of their, uh, you know, go-tos to reduce opioid use. The other uh, actually pretty common multimodal strategy they've been using is um, lidocaine um, infusion, which uh, has been helpful. And and then, you know, they they do some other things to try to avoid postoperative nausea vomiting. It's not necessarily anesthetic related, but rather um, things that you know, just help with that process, dexamethasone being one of them. But, you know, yeah, there are some other types of, um, you know, you could go down the rabbit hole of like the epidural analgesia, (laughs) whether it's like the, you know, local anesthetic with opioid or not, or intrathecal opioids, like all of those types of things. But in general, we we have the um, anesthesiologist uh, to, to discuss. There's also, you know, some other peripheral regional blocks, you know, like the transverses abdominis plane blockade. Uh, I wouldn't say we use that routinely. Um, I do a lot of robotic cystectomies. Honestly, pain isn't a big issue. And that's, I think, I think maybe that is the biggest take-home point is that we think of it as a big operation, and it is. There's no doubt. But that doesn't mean that is an operation that has significant or tremendous amount of pain. I think a lot of it can be managed with um, scheduled Tylenol, NSAIDs. Um, things of that nature. And most cases, we we can get by with um, minimal um, opioids. I mean, we use it for the first day or two. And then after that, we can actually almost routinely, you know, dial down the opioids very, very quickly. What about what about your um, practices? Yeah, yeah, I would say it's um, exactly similar. Um, you know, Tylenol and ibuprofen or Tordol in, in-house kind of provides the backbone. I think it's more of a practice pattern thing for us. It's it is tap blocks versus epidurals, um, mm-hmm. and I would kind of maintain that I think the the benefit, especially if you have like a two three centimeter periumbilical incision, is is probably pretty pretty marginal. Yeah, and I mean I, I kind of totally agree, and I would say it's kind of outside the scope when you you know limit fluids uh, intraoperatively and you know close monitoring of you know the various output parameters. Um, how about things that kind of that you let's just say try to be fastidious about or teach to the fellows and the residents, you know, at the, at the level of the surgeon when you're actually doing the operation, I mean, expeditiously to careful tissue handling, minimizing blood loss, et cetera. What are your kind of Angie Smith pearls for the residents and fellows? Yeah, I think, I think that uh, when we perform procedures, um, there's a few considerations. So it's the procedure itself, what you're doing, and also the time that it takes to perform the procedure. Um, sometimes we minimize that time issue, but I think it's something to 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 consider. And the reason I say that, and that's probably one of the pearls that I want to, that's why I'm kind of speaking about it, perhaps because my husband is a neuropsychologist, so I think a lot about um, post-operative cognitive dis- dysfunction, but we don't talk very much about it as surgeons. We really don't, but it exists. And the people who are going to be most susceptible are basically cystectomy patients. So they're the patients who are 70 and older, you know, have, an, you know, a longer um, operative time. So I actually think about that. And, and you know, we, 
you know, circle back to the beginning of the podcast, you asked me robotic and open. If I have a patient that I do have some significant concern about that, I might do it open. I know I can go do it a little faster than robotic. And I do it that way so I can minimize the time under anesthesia. I also think about, you know, lymph node dissections. We perform lymph node dissections, but we don't have great evidence for the benefit of standard versus extended. And I think a lot about that. You know, if, you know, an extended node dissection for a younger patient, I'm going to do it. But for an older patient, I think actually it's much more important for them to get off the table quicker to avoid the postoperative cognitive dysfunction because a lot of them, their goals, their quality of life is really all about trying to reduce um, or, or trying to get back to their normal quality of life. Got it. Got it. I think that's spot on. So we've gotten them through the operation. Can you kind of just walk us through broad strokes, typical patient, um, you know, what post-op day zero, one, two, and three look like? Maybe specifically with respect to diet, fluids, incorporation of PT, OT, and drains. Yeah, drains, drains. Yeah, these are all the, you know, this is all um, <laughs> works in progress, I will say. But I'll tell you what we do currently. Now we're, we've sort of really pushed the envelope in terms of early enteral feeding. So I, I would say when I first began, it was, you know, maybe sips on day one. And then, you know, but now um, we really go almost straight to clears. And then the next day we got a regular diet. We actually push it pretty quickly. Now, if a patient is not doing well, has nausea or bloating and, you know, we'll, we'll keep it on clears and we won't push it. But if they're doing well, there's no reason to um, withhold it. And I think there's, there is some good evidence for early enteral feeding. So, so and I think it, it helps with the patient as well. So we, we, we tend to do that. It actually simplifies the process. Um, patients are happier. And for the most part, it, it works pretty well. The last, I mean, you know, and it's, it's, this is, I think, attributable to alvimapan and other ERAS protocols. But the last maybe two or three cystectomies I've had actually were kind of ready to go home on day three. I wasn't brave enough to send them. <laughs> so I made them stay. I said it was a, you know, one of those days to, you know, practice being at home. But yeah, they're, they're doing well with this uh, early refeeding um, protocol. So that, that answers that. We also do a pretty standard PTOT evaluation. I don't see a, a downside to that. Um, at the very least, they get some exercises out of it. Um, I told you I'm a big believer in PT, whether it's pelvic PT or perioperative PT. And at the very least, they can, you know, get some information like, hey, when you go home, why don't you do these exercises? And it gives a patient, the patient something to do. It also prompts them to walk. One thing that I've learned, uh, and I, I, you know, I always talk to my patient day one, uh, to, you know, I always talk to them every day, but on day one, and I reiterate it on day two, I explain why I want them to do what I want them to do. That is actually really important. And maybe that is an obvious, um, you know, thing. But but if you really think about it, I think my my prior practice was like, hey, um, we'd like you to walk three times a day. Okay, we'll come and check on you later. I really left out the why, but I think the why is really important. And I explained, hey, listen, you know, I know it's going to hurt to get up to walk. I understand that. But here's why. I want to reduce the risk of pneumonia, which you're at risk for. I want to reduce the risk of DVT, which you're at risk for. And all of this thing, all of these things can be reduced just by you getting out of bed a few times a day. Um, and likewise, um, for incentive spirometry. And the interesting thing is once I started saying that, uh, my patients were much more compliant on doing them. Go figure. I mean, it, it makes sense. And perhaps that was an obvious, but uh, an obvious thing to have been saying. But 
you know, when you do a day in, day out, um, these are the things that maybe you take for granted. One takes for granted as a surgeon. So that's much more important to me. And I talk to my patients about it. And then I think the last question was about drains. So I think there's a few. So it depends, right? So let's say we're talking about an ileal conduit. Then I, I always have um, stents in for that. And then I'll have uh, a JP drain. Um, I tend to remove the JP drain basically the day before, day of um, their discharge. And I don't typically send a JP creatinine unless I have some kind of concern. It's very rare to have a leak, but I'll, you know, do it. I, I leave it in um, for a couple reasons. One, if there's a urine leak, although that's rare, or if there's some kind of bowel leak, also rare. I will say that one of my colleagues actually just last week, he announced, he's like, you know what, I'm going to take the drain out on day one because we don't have leaks. And I'm just going to send a JP creatinine right then and there and then take it out. And um, I'm not brave enough to do that yet. But I, you know, I think it's reasonable. And his reasoning for that, you know, because you always have to have some reasoning, is that, you know, that drain is just another tube out of their body that might bother them. I, you know, we know, right, you have that in there. How often does your patient talk about it leaking around that drain site, right? So it's not a benign entity. So I think it's reasonable to consider, you know, why do we have it in the first place? And then regarding stents, I leave those in for about a week and I've gone back and forth. Some people leave them in for longer and I used to do that. What I found was that I think with the biofilm that forms, I had a higher rate of infections when I would remove the stents, even if I use peri procedure or peri tube removal antibiotics, which I do three days, peri, you know, I do day before, day of, day after, which many do. Um, but I still was having a lot of infections with that. So I actually moved it way up to just one week. I see them one week after surgery because I usually typically go home day four or five and then I see them at day seven or eight. And I just remove it at that point. And um, I haven't had any issues and I've had a lot less um, infections. So that's a lot, um, but I'm, I'm happy to answer any other uh, questions about it. But I think that's like the general post-operative, um, perioperative um, standard that standards that I, at least I use right now. Yeah, a lot of that resonates. I mean, I can read ERS protocols that say drains out post-op day one and you look back and you haven't had leaks, but it's it's a tough sell to take them out a little bit earlier, recognizing that it can be like a protein sump or that they're mm -hmm. another avenue for fluid loss. But um, I'm kind of in the same camp as you. And uh, we do we do stay pretty aggressive in terms of, you know, clears uh, the evening of surgery and the post-op day one, you know, advancing to a regular diet if they're lacking any symptoms of reflux or bloating, distension, et cetera. So we're, we're kind of on the same page there. If they have nephrostomy tubes in, how do you typically manage those? Yeah, I tend to take them out pretty quickly. I don't take them out at the time of surgery. And the reason for that is I want to see what things are looking like. So, and it kind of makes sense. It's sort of like a stepwise maneuver that just uses logic, which is, you know, during the case or, you know, sometime at least by the end of the case, I just, I just clamp the nephrostomy tubes. And then the next morning, as long as they're proving themselves to have good urine output through the stents, then I remove them. I try to not to use too much, you know, um, unnecessary procedures. You know, you can certainly do it under fluoroscopy, but I just say, hey, listen, just have a hold, you know, one person just hold on to the stents and the other person just pulled a nephrostomy tube, you know, in that rare case that they're intertwined. And um, I haven't had any issues with regard to that. So I tend to do it quickly. And, and the reason for it is, again, it improves their quality of life significantly. They're much more likely to get up out of bed and walk if we get those tubes out. And what do they need them for if the stents are in, right? And, the, and, the, and there's urine output coming out of it. So 
I think it's a reasonable thing to do, um, at least in my practice. That's, that's what I try to, to aim for. Yeah, I think absent any type of tenuous anastomosis, et cetera, would generally, generally agree. So as, you know, patients are kind of meeting their milestones, feeling good, they've been assessed by PTOT and it sounds like it's reasonable for them to go home. Of course, there's inpatient rehab, stiffs, et cetera. So when they're going home, um, you mentioned the peritube antibiotics. Um, what other medications are you sending them home with? So we will give a small prescription for opioids, but it's not very much, it's about a week's worth. And, um, you know, it's, it, it's, it's pretty standardized. Um, we typically give four weeks of Lovenox for our patients as well. That's pretty standard, although with regard to financial toxicity, we, we do individualize that because it can be quite expensive for some patients and we don't want to bankrupt them because of Lovenox, for example, right? So we think about that. We give the three-dose antibiotic that we had mentioned. In terms of others, there's not a lot of good evidence for Colase. Um, so we, we actually did away with that. There's actually a really good Cochrane. Um, it, it feels weird not to give it, right, because it's sort of embedded in our belief system. But rather than that, I, you know, we just talk about hydration. I mean, it's all about hydration. And in that regard, I don't do this routinely, but I'll take a look at their uh, bicarb level. If I feel like they have some developing or already present metabolic acidosis, I might consider giving them sodium bicarb. I know I'm not the only urologist in this country who does that, but it's, uh, I have found that it's helpful because it can... Uh, I think that it's it 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 avoid it helps patients avoid that I call it the spiral because when they get metabolic acidosis it basically begets dehydration and then you they get a little nauseated now they're not going to drink and it just it's this it's the spiral that then worsens the acidosis right and that often is what leads to readmission so if I can give them some sodium bicarb um, prescribed um, at least in the short term that can sometimes be helpful in preventing that. And I, and again, I, I really, really um, emphasize the need for their own hydration. I actually don't emphasize as much eating because I think a lot of patients believe like, oh, I need to eat. I need to eat. I, it's like, really, you need to drink. You need to have fluids and, you know, electrolyte rich fluids. And that's enough, at least for the, you know, the first few weeks. And um, I would say that's, uh, I'm, I'm sure I'm missing something. I'm trying to remember anything else, but I think that's the the takeaway of, in terms of what we prescribe. And then, of course, some Tylenol and ibuprofen and all of the other multimodal over-the-counter regimens. Yeah, really, really similar for us as well. We've actually gone to a Pixaban 2.5 milligrams twice daily, just, uh, you know, because a total patient comfort thing, not having to mess around with the shots. And um, we worked with our pharmacist and we were able to get it approved. And, and it may actually help out with some of the financial toxicity, something to consider. Um, That's sodium a great bicarb. consideration. Yeah. I'm going to add that into you know, our protocol. <laughs> sodium bicarb fairly routinely for neobladders, kind of case by case, but 100% agree with that spiral of, you know, this little low level nausea, decreased mm -hmm. PO, and so forth. And I think it's really wonderful that you see the patients, you know, just a few days out where you're going to definitely get a sense of are they thriving or are they failing to thrive? And, I, and I'm guessing that really helps out with uh, nurse calls. Do you all have your nurses kind of touch base or are there hotlines um, for the patients, you know, at any kind yeah. of given time points? Yeah, so we have multiple things in place. So our hospital, in and of it, they have a team who who always calls each discharge patient, not just cystectomy patients, just any discharge patient within 48 hours to check on them, um, a nurse does. And that's been helpful because, you know, I'll, there's many times I'll get um, some information that I did not know 
that I can act upon. So I think that's helpful. We have a specific triage nurse. And so they're given that number. And that's what she does all day, every day. And God bless her. She's, you know, just absolutely wonderful and um, patient, very knowledgeable. And essentially, she's there to answer these questions. Um, I will say also, um, one of my own areas of research funding is in mobile health technology. And I do believe the, the way of the future, so to speak, and perhaps the future is now, is using mobile health technology to help recognize these potential issues of like dehydration or pending infection, things of that nature. And it can be done in a way and in, and in that these apps, and they exist, um, there's multiple exist, some hospitals already have them in place. Um, we're doing it more on an invest- investigational level through my research, but there are other healthcare systems actually use it. And they use it for ERAS, so pre-op, inter, uh, peri-op, and post-op. But the, the idea is that, especially in the post-op setting, that every day or every few days, they get, uh, the patient gets a, a little educational piece of information. They're asked um, a few very pertinent questions, for example, like fever or wound, um, you know, infection, erythema, et cetera, or um, dehydration, intake level. And if their response meets a certain threshold, then that uh, is then punted to the triage nurse to, to contact them and find out what's going on. And I think that's, you know, really the way that we probably need to be considering post-cystectomy care, because not every patient's going to be at risk for these uh, readmissions. We just want to find, we want to best use our resources in a way that identifies those at highest risk and then intervene in a timely manner. And that's one way that that we are trying to do it. Um, it's not in prime time yet or, you know, for prime time yet, but it's it's something that we're we've been working on. And then I will also I should also mention that we um, almost for everyone, not everyone, but I would say 80 percent and we leave it up to the patient. We usually get home health involved and we do that. Actually, we got we get that started on post-op day one. So it's just ready to roll when they leave. And I think that's actually quite helpful because it's just one more touch point. Someone who can look at the stoma if they have an ileal conduit or even a neobladder, you know, either way, I think it's helpful to have someone knowledgeable looking at it um, in between when they get go home and in, the, in between the time that they come and see me. And then finally, we have a what, what's called a survivorship care visit. And that's at six weeks for everyone. And at that point, I always get an ultrasound. Because it gives me a sense of whether or not there's a potential pending obstruction going to occur. Because how many times have, you know, maybe I should just put my own hand up here, but how many times do you get a stricture? And, you know, you only know it's a stricture because they present with a febrile UTI that required a readmission and potentially perknephrodumes emergently. Well, it'd be great to, to actually intervene upon that prior to that. And I think that visit's very helpful as a touch point, not only to evaluate for potential you know, impending strictures, but also just to talk about how they're doing. Because usually at six weeks, there's, that's a turning point for patients. And if they're not turning, then now what, what other kind of resources can we offer them to, um, to help them along the way? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I would summarize that as it, it makes total sense to keep your finger closely on the pulse um, where they're not going to, you know, be at home failing to thrive. And, uh, you know, they come in in a, in a situation that requires a significant amount of work to, to turn them back around and get them back on the straight and narrow. Well, Angie, this has been an absolute tremendous amount of information. If I could keep picking your brain for hours. Um, one random question I wanted to get in there as we approach an hour is, 
female patients with persistent vaginal discharge. How do you how do you handle that? Yeah, that's a it's a great question because I certainly have had some patients with this issue. So I when I when I have that, I mean, the very first thing I will do is um, an exam, and maybe that's obvious, but I think it's actually really important because you want to make sure that the cuff is closed. You know, you want to make sure that this isn't something else beyond just vaginal discharge rate. I think the character, and then secondly, I think the character of the vaginal discharge matters actually is a really excellent example. Um, this, uh, maybe two weeks ago, had a patient come back. She had stage four, she, she had a cystectomy. I actually did an anterior vaginectomy and just, you know, she's an older patient, just reconstructed the vagina. And she just recently had some um, additional vaginal discharge. It just seemed out of the ordinary. The character of the discharge had um, had kind of changed, almost like I thought maybe there was an infection. But uh, because of her advanced disease, I always am a little concerned about recurrence. And so we ended up scanning her and she does actually have a recurrence there, even though she had negative margins. Um, so I think if you have this persistent discharge, important to, you know, to consider that. And sometimes it's benign. OK, sometimes it is. And, and it's, it's at these points that I, I actually have really wonderful gynonc and urogyne colleagues and I'll have them evaluated doesn't happen that often, but that's when I get them involved because sometimes they'll have some ideas that I hadn't thought of. But in general, that's my process by which I, I sort of go down the path of managing that. I'm curious what yours are because I, I don't know if there's like a tried and true method for this. Yeah, I think early on, you know, barring anything intraoperatively that was concerning, et cetera, you know, the small several milliliters, you know, I think that generally will cease uh, as they get out, you know, four, six weeks. But if it persists 100%, it's, it's a vaginal exam, just making sure there's not any small dehiscence. I recently had a patient who was interesting. It was a urachal adenocarcinoma with a drop met to the posterior vagina and had to do a, you know, complete vaginectomy. The bladder, the vaginal cuff came, came together quite nicely. And she had some persistent discharge that was a little bit higher volume that I would like to see just, you know, peritoneal fluids seeping out from some, you know, small little areas between the sutures. But I did an exam and that's precisely what it was, this little pinpoint area. And, you know, I counseled her on just a little bit more time. But uh, generally, I feel like they resolve without too much of an issue. It's going to be the one-off where it may be, you know, pretending something a little bit more different. But, uh, you know, I think your, your last comment on even touching base with Eurogyne really captures the theme of this entire episode, which is it's a team sport. You know, of course, we're in it as surgeons. Then there's anesthesia, nutrition, smoking cessation, physical therapy, hospital level folks calling, calling the patients afterwards. And it really, I think, takes a village to safely get these patients do this, you know, massive, massive experience. So with that, love to hear any, any parting thoughts, Angie. And, uh, you know, thank you again for your time. Yeah, well, thanks again for having me. I, I think that um, maybe the parting thought that I would leave everyone with, and I, I should have probably mentioned at the very beginning is, you know, if, if anyone wants to read more, and I, I wouldn't encourage you to do it because that's how we change our practices. And, you know, even this conversation, there's two takeaways that I'm going to be, you know, potentially changing in my own practice. It's learning, you know, and, and one great resource um, that I had the privilege of being a part of is the AUA white papers on um, perioperative management and, um, and optimization and surgery. And so they're really nicely split into, you know, preoperative management, intraoperative management, postoperative management, and perhaps more than anybody would ever want to read about it. But I do think, you know, just kind of perusing it is um, really helpful, whether you're 
you know, new in practice and want to develop some kind of ERAS protocol as you begin, or if you've been established and just thinking, you know, we can do better. Let me see what we can do and incorporate in our practice. I think it's a great resource. It's free. It's online and it's current. So um, I've actually learned a lot just being a part of that project, things I had not even considered or known about. So I think it, my, my parting um, words is to, you know, just stay curious and to always question what we do and how we can improve. Um, because that's, I think that's part of the fun of medicine. And it, um, and I think there's no, probably no better way to do that than through things like enhanced recovery after surgery and patient-centered um, clinical care. So again, thank you for having me. It's really been a pleasure um, having this conversation with you. I, I really, I've really thoroughly enjoyed it. Thanks. Yeah, I've actually read that paper. It's excellent. And, um, you know, one last thing, maybe if you're doing cystectomies, regardless of the volume of your hospital, don't be intimidated. That's a perfect document to give a read touch base with your anesthesiologist. It doesn't need to be a complete 1000% overhaul at time point zero. Start with the little things that you can do and build a program. All right, Angie. Well, thank you so much for uh, the wealth of information. I certainly have learned a lot over the last two episodes, and I'd like to thank the Backtable Urology listenership for tuning into the podcast. Until next time. 